Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Ben and welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. And this is part two of our discussion of the top 10 tournaments of all time. Last week, we got from 10 to 5. So we've got the top four to come. But, you know, big shock. What's going to be number one? I I'm, I'm, mm. can't, can't wait to find out. Michael mm. here as usual. Before we get into that, we're going to get back to the emails. I didn't have time for... Last time, James Cook is our friend traveling around America. Oh, yeah. uh, I, th- I think his travels have now stopped, but anyway, he uh, listened to enjoyed our world championship review podcast. He said, Overall, I'd give the world championship eight out of ten. Some early shocks, Alan Higgins and Trump, some real drama in the semi final round. Ronnie, a deserved winner. The way he raised his game to win the last three frames against Selby was astonishing. I, and I've forgotten about this. He said, I was delighted to see my suggestion dis- dis- discussed on a previous Snooker Scene podcast for an applause button being adopted. Oh, yeah. It's not audience part of the championship. My question, though, who is operating the button? They operated it very well, I thought. It's good to see fans in for the final. It was actually, I was told it was referees. Um, the only thing I would say about that is, I think actually, I mean, at, at the start, the, the first recording they got of the applause was terrible. I mean, it should not have been used. They got a better version. The only thing is, you are asking people to make a judgment call about what's a good shot or not. Now, some shots are obvious, like a, a you know a, a, long, a raking long red or, or getting into the pack and landing on one. There were a couple of other shots I thought where they could have used applause and didn't, but overall, I don't think it did any harm. He says, Michael needs a new internet provider. Perhaps this is a sponsorship <laughs> opportunity. Uh, great to see Jimmy winning another world senior title. Does this mean the Crucible curse is well and truly debunked? Well, we did, we did talk about that last week, of course. And he said, finally, the COVID refugee family made it to Maine on the East Coast, almost completing the journey. We head back to New York at the end of September. So they are still going. Uh, on, a, on a COVID road trip, we've been to around 35 US states, including, now concentrate here. Think about the first initial of these states, okay? Right. Including South Dakota, Nevada, Ohio. Oh, I see where this is going. Oklahoma. Yeah. Kentucky. And Rhode Island. Unfortunately, there's no U.S. state beginning of the letter E. No, anyway. indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you, James. Uh, we'll move on. Adam Fisher has raised four different issues that we'll cover reasonably quickly. First one, Adam says, table fitting. 
pure nerd territory, but what happens to the tables? Are they transported around the country, Europe, to each venue? Is the one set of table fitting staff who tour the whole season? Do the table fitters get to play a cheeky frame at the end of a competition? It's a fair question because, you know, you turn on the telly and there are the tables. Uh, they don't play a cheeky frame. They can't wait to dismantle the tables because it's, it's quite an intense job. There's a team of table fitters from World Snooker Services, and yes, they travel everywhere. They presumably keep the tables in their in their uh, base, but I mean, obviously, they're dismantled, so it's essentially slates and bits of wood and, and cloth and so on. They do a fantastic job, but it's pretty pretty literally a thankless job because they never get any thanks for it. But it's every venue has its own challenges. You know, the Crucible is a sprung floor; it's quite complicated to get the tables level. And obviously, you know, the venues and parts of the world, the weather affects, well, the weather actually in Sheffield this year affected the tables, but there's a lot that you, they need to think about in terms of installing the tables. And there's some venues, of course, the Home Nations, there's like 10 tables they've got to put in, plus practice tables. They're not a massive crew, but they, they do work hard. And, you know, they're, they're basically lugging bits of slate around. It's not it's not a glamorous job, but it's a very important one. There was a guy, Chris, a couple of years ago, he nearly lost a finger when the, he dropped a slate on it. You know, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work. It really is. And they do a good job. So nice that they're mentioned there. Can I mention uh, something there, actually? Uh, just yeah. Talk of uh, the, having a cheeky frame on the table. There are two stories that brings to mind. There was a guy who was working at the championship for BBC Radio probably about 20 years ago who insists that when the final finished, he went out into the arena and had a cheeky frame on the table. This is at the world championship now. Now, as you said there, you know, they get in and dismantle it pretty mm. much as soon as the trophy's over. So we've always doubted that story. But yeah, also, where would, like, where, where, do he add, you know, add his cue with him, did he? I mean, the balls and Yeah, nonsense. The original fake news, that's where it started, yeah. right there. Mm. The, the, other, the other thing as well, though, it, you may not remember this, but you and I very nearly did manage to have a cheeky frame after a final. Now, I won't say what the tournament was, because what I'm going to say next could land me in serious trouble if I did. But there was a tournament, you, you'll probably remember this, and I went to the, I was on very good terms with the promoter at the start of the week, you and I were mm. basically the only media people there, and I said to him, I, I brought in mind the um, the end of Rocky 3, where mm. um, they, they go to the gym, because all through the movie there's this thing where uh, Apollo Creed has told Rocky he wants this favour, and the favour turns out to be that they just go to the ring and have a boxing match at the end of it. So I was uh, in, in a gym, uh, just sort of as revenge for Rocky taking Apollo Creed's world title. Anyway, so I was a loser. Spoiler. Spoiler. Yeah. Spoiler, yeah. It's only, it's only 40 years. <laughs> anyway, where are we going with this? Oh, yeah. So I said to them at the start of the week, I'm looking for a favor for you on Sunday night. Because I knew, like, I don't think there were any table fitters there. But I don't think they were going to be rushing in to dismantle the table. And the idea was that you and I would go. It was, wasn't the most well-attended tournament, so I don't think anyone would really even have noticed. But we'd go at the end of the final and have a cheeky frame on the table. Unfortunately, as you may recall, me and the promoter weren't on such good terms by the end of the week. And the promoter was certainly not on such good terms with his bank manager by the end of that week. So when it came to it, we didn't actually bother asking. So I don't think anyone has ever actually managed to uh, to do a, uh, a cheeky frame like that. It would, be, it would be quite a story to tell if it was true. There's so much going on beneath the surface of that story there, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll gloss over it. Uh, flukes. I'm in no way advocate. I'm, this is Adam, by the way, Adam Fisher. I am in no way an advocate of banning all flukes, but I think some discussion should be had. I think that flukes, only fluke pots, should be banned when it comes down to the final colours. After seeing Karen win the semi and the state it caused him and Anthony, I think in the interest of the game, something should be changed. Could the fluke ball be discarded, brought back onto the table in its original position and the player get to retake the shot from wherever the cue ball ended up? Unsure. I don't know if I even like the idea myself, but it nags away at me. Well, I think, to be honest, unfortunately, 
or maybe in some ways from a viewing perspective, let's be honest, fortunately, they are part of the game. Obviously, that flute was very, very important, the one when Kyron fluted that green and he was in tears. I mean, that's how badly it affected him. I actually think they're quite hard to police, though, because, it, you know, even if you say, oh, we've got to nominate pockets, well, you can flute the ball in the same pocket, actually. Um I mean, I think you give, you slightly give yourself away, Adam, when you when at the end of that uh, paragraph you actually say you're not sure you agree yourself. I just think it is part of the game, and you know, if if flukes were banned, I mean, I know you say on the colours, but if flukes full stop were banned, we never would have had Cliff's maximum that maximum we mentioned from John Higgins in the yeah. LG Cup. You know, unfortunately, luck, as in life, in games can go for you and against you. Yeah, it's very much part of it, and as well, you know, when you're talking about flukes, you can't just focus on pots because getting a bit of a you know, nice run of the ball from a positional point of view can actually be far more beneficial than just fluking a pot. So how do you do, you know, how do you work that out? How do you, you know, eliminate the flukes from the positional side of it? Someone going into the pack and maybe being really lucky to land on a red might be someone's mm. perception of how it's turned out. So no, I, I don't see any reason at all to, uh, to change it. And I mean, how would you determine it? Would you have to nominate a pocket of the time? And then even if you did nominate the pocket, it could still run across the table and come back into that pocket. So I don't think it's a realistic thing at all. And I don't think there's any reason for it. I mean, it's just the nature of it. You know, some sports say if you run, you know, if you're a 100 metres runner, then it's basically very simple. You run from one place to another and whoever gets the fastest time is the winner. But in games with, you know, rules that have been devised over years, it's just part of it. Football, golf, tennis, snooker, darts, all of these things. There's bound to be a bit of luck along the way. And you're never going to eliminate it. So don't even try. There we are. Um, I'm going to gloss over. The, he's got a thing here. Debut seasons on the pro circuit. That's actually quite a lengthy topic. So we may return to that yeah, at, another, at another date. Finally, mental health of players and fans. Big subject area that needs a discussion. It would be also help a lot of the fans of the game. In particular... After hearing Martin Gould saying he would just stay in his hotel room and play computer games and literally self-isolate pre-COVID-19 on tour, what do players actually do when not playing, especially events in China? Do they take tourist trips or is it pure practice? Discussions on keeping busy and mentally active off the table would be interesting. But you're right. I mean, it's a very important topic. Mark Allen uh, was on the podcast a couple of years ago just before he won the Masters. He was talking about how his routine has changed. He used to isolate himself um, particularly overseas, he then found you know he was really not in a good place doing that. He started to make a few friends who he could go out with for dinner. Uh, Graham Dot was on the podcast, one of the early episodes, talking about his experience with depression. When it comes to going to places like China, what I've found is most players they don't do the tourist thing because they are actually there to work. It's a job. It's not a holiday. So it might seem odd, you know, going to some great cities of the world and not seeing them. But actually, I can sort of understand it. They are there to work. There's a lot of hanging about to be done. Um, and, and snooker is a very individual game. You know, it's it's one of the few sports where when you're playing it, you can be sat in your chair for long periods just mm -hmm. on your own. So I think I absolutely agree. It's a very important topic. It's talked about more and more. And hopefully what, I'm, what I would like to do is actually speak to Martin at some point on the podcast. So when I see him, I'll ask him if he'd like to come on because he did open up about just talking about it. That was the thing, not only the issue of having, you know, these problems, but actually having the sort of courage to come forward and talk about them. There's a guy, Mark Williams, not that one, but not the three times champion, but uh, he works for World Snooker. And he noticed that Martin wasn't feeling well and he spoke to him and got him some help. So there is help there for the players. But yeah, it, it, snooker is a, a sport that I think lends itself to it. And we will hopefully in the future return to it. But right now... 
we get a slight change of pace. Dave Tyndall. Now, Dave, of course, oh, yeah. uh, has a has a table at home. He played the World Championship. He's played various tournaments on the table. And now he's unveiled the commentator's pot black special. He'd been watching the World Championship. He said, uh, now here's the thing. He says here, I've got 13 of the current names pretty quickly, but needed three more to make up to 16. Well, actually, Dave, you missed out Alan McManus, who surely would have been (laughs) one of the the favourites to win it. Anyway, so the three that he's drafted in are Ted Lowe, Clive Everton and Vera Selby. Um, One of whom's dead. Well, (laughs) yes, at least one. Uh, I'm sure you and Michael know Vera is the female voice heard commentating on some of the 82 action. She was indeed. I also decided they needed seeding. This was easy to begin with. Hendry first, Steve Davis second, etc. But then I had to make a judgment call on some of the others. Vera is a former women's world champion, so she went in at number 11, while I read that Phil Yates once made, made a century. That's that made in number 12. I pictured the late, great Ted Lowe gently compiling a 50 and a pastel cardigan at his home in East Sussex. So he was number 13. Well, I guess the final three, I'm 14th. Dave Farrow is 15 and Philip Sturt 16. Now, oh, not- no, I totally disagree. No, Philip's actually a reasonably good player. And well, let's be fair, Dave, you're rubbish. Well, okay, but we don't listen. We don't want to put Dave to the trouble of playing the whole thing again. So this is yeah, the draw. Yeah, yeah. This is the draw. Okay, Stephen Hendry versus Philip. The first round draw: Stephen Hendry versus Philip Studd, Dominic Dell versus John Virgo, Dennis Taylor versus Phil Yates, Ted Lowe versus Ken Doherty, John Parrott versus me, Vera Selby versus Joe Johnson, Neil Folds versus Clive Everton, and Dave Farrer versus Steve Davis. And so Dave says, here's how it unfolded at the cesspit of business arena. <laughs> Last 16, Stephen Hendry's 35 break in the opener finished off a nervy Phillips stud 52-2, before Dominic Dell fired in a 47 to score a 61-0 win over John Virgo. Phil Yates fell to a heavy 85-1 defeat by Dennis Taylor, but Yates, always keen to revel in coincidence and symmetry, saw the irony of the scoreline, telling a disinterested security guard as he exited the arena, 85, of course, the year of Taylor's blackball victory over Steve Davis. Ted Lowe had his chances against Ken Doherty, but was left to ruin Miss Pink. I suppose being dead for 10 years didn't help Ted there, did yeah. it? Yeah. Decent uh, effort. Yeah. Decent effort. If, if the top half was predictable, the bottom half went rather like Alice in Wonderland. Third seed, I can't believe I'm reading this out now. Third seed John Parrott looked to be cruising past Dave Hendon before the Brummy Brummy playwright tore up the script to win to win 40-36 on the black. Joe Johnson showed no mercy against Vera Selby, but then came a pair of shocks. Clive Everton, Clive Everton's carefully crafted 29 took him past world number three, Neil Folds, before, in a sensational bottom match, 500-1 outside of Dave Farrer produced a stunning 68 clearance to knock out second seed Steve Davis. Now, I'm going to read out the quarterfinals, then we're going to have a cliffhanger for next week when, when we'll find out who's won, OK? So, quarterfinals. Hendry, warming to his task now, eased past Dominic Dale, 57-10 in the opening last eight clash. Dale was impressed, the erudite Welshman likening... Dale was impressed, the erudite Welshman likening Hendry's queuing to the brushstrokes of Matisse. Dennis Taylor, who thought Dale was referring to US golfer Len... Matthias, is that? I don't no, see. That's, I don't, that's, that's, that's pronounced Matisse. You see, well. I don't... Yeah, you see, I... So I've written, masters, yeah. I've ruined that joke by not knowing who he is. Uh, then one is all Ireland battle against Ken Doherty, 59-28. Dave Hendon v. Joe Johnson was the talk of Eurosport HQ, but the hapless, the hapless Hendon, looking twitchy and constantly fiddling with his Roger Bales bus tours sponsor logo, twice went it off. Johnson, 80 by breaker 34, showed his class and romped home 74-20. Not today, David, said Joe with a smirk as he mopped up the colours. In the final last eight encounter, Clive Everton showed his mastery of the cue ball to see off... First round giant killer Dave Farrer, leaving us a semi final lineup of Stephen Hendry versus D- Dennis Taylor and Joe Johnson versus 
Clive Everton. So that's where we where we leave it. Next week we'll have the semis. Uh, the final, as when Dave wrote in, haven't been played, but I suspect by next week, uh, or yeah, we will have the uh, the results there. So uh, that's no, how it's. No, I mean if, if if you end up with a Taylor versus Everton final, yeah, I know it's only one frame, but it could take about a fortnight to get through it. Indeed, and uh, let's hope let's hope Clive doesn't grab Dennis's tie and nearly strangle him oh, as he yeah. did when, when he fell out of the commentary box. Anyway, that's a story for another time. Now, last week uh, we were talking about the top ten tournaments of all time, and uh, well, why don't we just uh, recap on where we where we've got to? So I'll I'll go from ten to we went from ten to five. So ten for me was the World Masters, number nine the Mercantile Classic, number eight the Welsh Open, number seven the Irish Masters. Number six, the champion of champions, and number five was the German Masters. Have you got yours there? Yeah, yeah. So ten was the Grand Prix, nine was the British Open, eight was the Mercantile Credit Classic. I had the China Open at number seven, the Irish Masters at six, and the Welsh Open, the great survivor of the circuit, now mm. heading thirtieth staging this season at number five. Yes, and actually, as we record this, we recorded this a couple of days after the last one. The Welsh Open is now part of the European series. So it's now part of, it's part of the Home Nation series, the European series. It qualifies you in the Coral series. It counts towards the world rankings for the Crucible and can get you in the Champion of Champions. It's not bad for a tournament that for years was actually the poor relation. So uh, You could have someone going in, in, in theory, if you'd won the first three Home Nations events and you also needed to win the Welsh to win the European series. So you add it all up, you could be going into the Welsh playing for potentially almost one and a quarter million pounds. Yeah, I know it's it's uh, it's amazing, really. Anyway, um, so anyway, let's continue. Number four. So okay, so this is interesting because clearly there are three big tournaments in the top yeah. four, and I think it was established last week. I have the China Open in the summer as well. Uh, we're still waiting to see what your number four is, but my number four is the UK Championship. Oh, now I'm guessing I'm guessing that's in your list. But what is your it's, it's what is your number four? My number four, well, we, we spoke, it's a slightly left field choice because it's a tournament that only was played five times. It hasn't been played for almost 28 years, but we were talking about this, that a lot of this list was sort of personal preference and personal experience. And it's a tournament that I thought was absolutely magnificent and I was really sad to see it go. The World Match Play. Okay, interesting. Well, that's not on my list, so we will, under, under the rules that I set myself, yeah. we, now, we will now talk about it. So just remind us what this tournament was. Yeah, well, basically, you know, we talk a lot about Barry Hearn when he was the game's leading promoter long before he was running the game. And I think the word you would use from them was innovator. We spoke about the World Masters, didn't we, last week? And that was a great innovation. Mm. So in 1988, it was announced in conjunction with uh, Frank Warren, who was a big cheese in boxing at the time. They were going to put on this event called the World Match Play. Now, Frank Warren said the top players will regard this as the real world championship. Now, that was ridiculous because why would they? But basically, the thing about it was, it was best of 17 from the start. Uh, it was the first snooker tournament ever to have a six-figure first prize when it was staged in 1988. And it was on ITV uh, just a couple of weeks before Christmas. And the, the way you qualified for it was, it was based on the ranking points you'd earned in the previous season. So it wasn't like the Masters, where you had players in it who were hopelessly out of form. Elaine Robidoux famously played in the Masters, having not won a match in a ranking event for almost two years. And it just made for a fantastic tournament, really. You just had so many great matches. It was top informed players playing each other over long distances all the way. Also, it was a 12-man field. So you had the top four going straight into the quarterfinals, which meant you were guaranteed to have one of them playing 
pretty much every day. And they'd play someone who had already won a best of 17. The great thing was it came straight off the back, really, of the UK, which in those days was best of 17 all the way as well, uh, and best of 31 final. And so you had that run of about three weeks where you had these long matches, leading players playing each other, big money all the way. It really got you into the meat of the season. And just for me, it was a very special event and, you know, memories of so many great matches. The one thing that was missing from it in the five years it was played, it never had a good final. And in three of those years, the final was best of 35. And two of them were at least, you know, would be classed as absolute runaways. I remember the 89 final. I mean, that was just so well set up because you just had Henry against Davis in a memorable four-session UK final. You then had Parrot against White, the other two members of the real big four at that time, playing each other in a best of 35 final uh, in the last match, basically, of the 1980s. I remember Parrot was 8-5 up. He then won one of the next 14 frames and ended up getting beat in 18-9. I mean, how often does that happen to a player like John Parrot? So that was the one thing I think was missing from it. You never really had a good final. Uh, but other than that, I just remember it as a wonderful, wonderful tournament, long matches between top informed players. And uh, it was just such a shame that when ITV ended their involvement in snooker uh, at the end of the 92-93 season, it fell away. It was actually supposed to take place, believe it or not, in Qatar the following <laughs> season. But well, that was announced, but never actually happened. And then it was announced that it was coming back in 2004 on Sky. But again, for some reason, it never actually happened. In a sense, it kind of has come back now, of course, because with the Tour Championship, which is very, very similar to it. Again, it's on ITV. Again, it's players qualifying on the basis of their recent results. And it's big money and long matches all the way. So it's great to see not exactly the same tournament, but basically very, very similar, but just with a different name. But great memories of the world match playing. It just it was a special standout event at the time. And I think that's why I'm putting it so high on the list. No, it was a good tournament. I mean, I, I was gonna like the tour championship would made my shortlist, but I think the fact it's only been held twice is yeah. the re- is the reason it didn't get in. But that is definitely the sort of modern version. And of course, in one of those world match play finals, that was I mean, they made it best of thirty five to make it look like a world championship final. Yeah. But of course, it's worth saying Jimmy White did beat Stephen Hendry in a best of thirty five, which which tells you that the the issue with beating him at the world championship was the world championship. It wasn't the length of the match. It was the uh, it was the crucible and all the pressure on him there. But yeah, it was a it was a terrific event. It was it ended the year. It was the pre Christmas event, eased you into Christmas, um, and uh, yeah, another Barry Hearn winner, I guess. Uh, let's let's move on then. So I, at number three, I've got the China Open. Now you had this, and number seven. Um, and again, you know, you said that that's a personal choice, the world match play. This is as well, uh, because I've been to a few of these Chinese tournaments and I, I went to the first, the first iteration was in, in Shanghai, 1999. It's called the China International. Um, and then when it changed name, I went to Shenzhen, which was a quite an interesting experience. And Shanghai again, Beijing, though, is where the tournament has made its name. Go back to 2005, the tournament hadn't been held for three years. Uh, the circuit was in serious trouble. You know, lost tobacco sponsorship, but there was also massive infighting and mismanagement. That had that court case and all the rest of it after the, the rival tour was announced and so on. Will Snook at the time had appointed a new chief executive, Tim Howland. He, he'd assembled a team and they managed to get the tournament reinstated. Uh, he was then sacked, of course, by Sir Rodney Walker because he was too good. Um, Ding Junhui at that time, of course, had emerged. He was one of the reasons the tournament w- was put on. He'd emerged as a young prospect, a promising prospect. He was only 17 at the time. But because of his ranking, in normal circumstances, he would have to pre-qualify. They couldn't risk him not being in the draw. So he was taken out of the draw, then entered again as a wild card. And, of course, this proved to be an inspired decision that 
has had very positive ramifications for the sport since. He went on to win the title, beat Stephen Hendry in the final, sparked a genuine snooker boom, uh, the financial effects of which have been, of course, a massive help to players uh, and the game itself. You know, it's expanded the tour. It's brought massive investment in from China. And, okay, some of the events are held in places where people, uh, spectators, can't afford to go. Some of the Chinese events, sadly, from an audience perspective, uh, although we're getting used to this in general anyway, they don't have massive crowds. But Beijing and Shanghai, they do get big crowds. And they, they are fanatical when it comes to Ding. Myself and Phil Yates were there once. I think this was the year after he won it. And they announced Ding's ma- match for Table 3, which was odd, because you always think he's going to be on Table 1. Mm. So a large crowd gathered around Table 3, and then it was announced that actually, of course, he's on Table 1. And I'm not kidding, there was literally a stampede to get to the the, the the main table. We saw a fist fight, literally, over the last seat. These two guys were punching each other to try and get the last seat. This is what they this is what Ding means to them out there. You know, he's a massive superstar, because this was in the early years of Ding. Um, so I've seen it over there, and, and it's, a, it's a great event, the China Open. And, of course, in, in more recent years, I think, as the well, we'll come on to the UK Championship shortly, but I think as the UK Championship's prestige has come down a little bit, I think the China Open's has gone up. They've lengthened the matches, so it's now best of 11s. Semi-finals are two sessions, which you don't get in the UK now. The final is first to 11, which is a very strange, um, I think, uh, distance. But, you know, the prize money, obviously it wasn't staged this year, we know for obvious reasons, but the prize money now is huge. It's second only to the World Championship in terms of first prizes. Um, but more personally for me as well, you know, I, I went there when I was quite young initially. I was like in my early 20s when I went to, to China for the first time. You never know what somewhere is like until you go there. And I didn't know what to expect. It was a real eye-opener. There was one morning before play that I took a trip to the Great Wall of China. I went with uh, Phil and Ivan Hershevich, the who's then the press officer and he's now basically media supremo for World Snooker. Um, and it's, it's a huge kind of... Uh, structure the great wall i mean that, that, that's not breaking news i know but you have to get a little a chairlift to go up there and it's high up in the in the air and as you stood there you, you you're sort of there's a temptation to sort of be looking down on the world thinking what would i be doing now if i hadn't got into snooker because it was snooker that, that brought me here you know all those hours i spent watching snooker playing snooker being interested in snooker and now here i am on the great wall of china because of snooker um, and it was a great moment and a great chance to see, as I say, another culture, Tiananmen Square and all that stuff. I would never have seen any of that but for snooker. I can't imagine the other reasons I would have gone there. And I think, I mean, this week's been quite interesting in the sports media. The sports media is pretty ruthless business. And I remember Ray Stubbs, he was a BBC presenter, very good presenter, went off to Satanta to do football. But he once told me we we're having a drink at the Masters. And he said basically everyone in the sports media one day will get a tap on their shoulder and they'll be told your, your services are no longer required. And it's not always to do with your ability. It's to do with the fact that fashions change and someone comes in and they want something different. And he said, you know, the, the way you react to that will define your sort of future happiness. And all I'll say is when that happens to me, which it surely will at some point, and I'm sure a lot of people will be hoping it's quite soon. I, I can say genuinely I can say genuinely that I enjoyed myself on the snooker tour. I see some of these broadcasters. I mean, Alan Green, uh, the football commentator, did this big rant about how he'd been disrespected by the BBC because his contract wasn't extended. And I, I read it and I thought, have you taken any time over the years to actually enjoy what you're doing? Because it's a great job to have being a sports commentator. And China is part of that for me. In the early years when we went there, 
that was definitely a really enjoyable trip and one of the great memories I'll have of snooker when I'm finally <laughs> when I'm finally kicked out of it. So that's why for me the China Open is so high on the list. It's a great event, but it's also a great experience to be there and to see it. And certainly for me going there when I was younger, it's something that I, you know that I have good memories of. Well, Dave, I'm glad you said all that because actually I've been asked to have a little word with you. <laughs> no, no. Funny you should say that. I'm, I'm sitting here, as, as I've mentioned before, I, I do this podcast sitting in my office where I've got, you know, just walls and walls full of sports books. And I'm looking at one very famous sports broadcaster's autobiography, which I read some years ago. And he mentions in it something about how he had to wait a long time between the bacon and the egg arriving at breakfast. And <laughs> Honestly, it was like 30 years ago and he was still agreeing about it. And this is one of the absolute elite of British sports broadcasting. So it seems astonishing. And you do meet a lot of people who don't appreciate it. I think you and I have you know, both greatly appreciated the opportunities. Mm. Where, well, you and Snooker really just exclusively and me and, you know, a whole range of sports. So we do appreciate that. You mentioned Phil there, uh, another person who I think actually really does appreciate the yeah. opportunities he's been given. But if there was a world championship of exaggeration, you know, Phil would be so late because he just clean up and win it every year. But I remember at the end of that 2005 China Open, he said this was Snooker's most significant tournament for 20 years. That was not an exaggeration at all. If anything, he understated it. Because you could almost say it was Snooker's most significant tournament since, say, the 77 or 78 World Championship, which really stopped the TV snooker boom in the UK. Look at everything that's come from that China Open. It could all have been so different. Ding Junhui in the final played Stephen Hendry. You know, certainly at the time would have been regarded as the greatest player of all time. So it would have been no surprise at all if Hendry had beaten him. Would it have had quite as much of an impact on the game, things wrong, mm -hmm. if he hadn't actually gone on and won the tournament? And if he hadn't won it, would the... Would that all have led on then to Shanghai Masters, China Championship, International Championship, Yushan, all these tournaments we've had? It was a hugely, hugely significant tournament. And as you say, I mean, even aside from all that, what it's now become with the huge prize money, it's the last event before the World Championship, you know, when things happen in normal time. And of course, it has a huge impact on the World Championship in terms of you can get so many points and a player can just jump right up into the 16 and be able to skip the qualifying for Sheffield. So, yes, it is a huge event, and it's only going to get bigger, I think, in years ahead. Yeah, and also what, what I meant to say as well is that on the foreign trips um, outside Britain, in, in those days, that was how you got to know the players because you're all kind of to get you together, you're on the plane together, in the hotels together, so you, you get more of a chance to socialise and just get to know them, and therefore they would get a chance to sort of open up to you and trust you more. So that, that was always a useful component as well. Anyway, that's my number three, the China Open. Your number three is? The Masters. Interesting. Okay, well, well, my number two is the Masters. So um, let's talk about the Masters. Okay, so, well, go on, you, you, uh, you start. Yeah, I suppose we've got to talk about these two in conjunction, the Masters and the UK. Okay, Masters. yeah. So your yeah. UK second for you, yeah? Yes, it is. Now, you've put it at number four, and, that, and that's all yeah. perfectly valid. Just for me, okay, look, here's the thing. There's never been any question what's the biggest tournament in the game, you know, and, and if anyone hasn't figured out yet what it is, then <laughs> it's on center hooks now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, but if you were ranking it now, if you said, okay, what's the second biggest tournament? Um, certainly everyone will put the Masters, I think, now ahead of the UK. I think it's struggled to find anyone, actually, who would put the UK ahead of the Masters in its current form. But we are talking here about the whole history of it. And you've got to remember, from the time the UK started, right up until 2010, which was the last time under the old long-distance format, 
boy, did we have some amazing tournaments along the way. And you think of Steve Davis and all the years that he won it. And of course, a bit like the World Championship, the match you remember most from Steve Davis in the UK is the one uh, that he lost the final from 7 0 mm. against Alex Higgins in 1983. But it was a big breakthrough for so many players when Steve won it in 1980. You know, that was the moment when people, you know, really knew what was coming from Steve. He won the final so convincingly and so impressively. That was really the start of his reign. Of course, you and I remember it so well, having been four years old at the time. And then in 89, it went full circle, didn't it? Right at the end of the decade, the last UK of the 1980s. It was the beginning of the changing of the guard, really, when Henry played so well to beat Steve in the final. And then I think what completed the changing of the guard was when he beat him again in the thrilling final of 1990. But again, much like the world match play, for me, I just love the long matches. And you look at a deciding frame finish, and everyone's talking at the moment about the World Championship. They're not talking that much about the final. They're still all talking about the semifinals when we had the two deciders. Now, there's no doubt about it. A decider at the end of a best of 33, you can't compare it to a decider at a best of nine or best of 11. And when you had those 17 frame matches in the UK, it was somewhere in between the two. These guys had played all day. They'd come on at maybe one or two o'clock in the afternoon. They'd play the afternoon session and back in the evening. So there was a real sense of occasion if a match went to a decider. We just had so many great matches, so many great memories from it. And I think in those days, it was the second biggest. I don't well, think yeah. it is now. Uh, well, that's, well, that's looking at the whole history. Yeah, I'd put it number two. Well, that's the thing. I absolutely agree. But the reason it's been downgraded on my list to number four is that it's been downgraded as a tournament. Yeah. When I, when I, definitely, when I was a young snooker fan, the UK Championship was definitely second only behind the World Championship. You had the two-day final, the best of 17s. It felt special. It was a big tournament it's and now it still has its history which you can't argue with but it no longer has the same prestige it's been downgraded the early stages resemble a home nations event there's too many players and matches going on there's there's that sort of horrible second arena that no one likes playing in that's too tight and not very nice the final was shortened to one day match back in 1993 so it's quite a long time ago now and 10 years 10 years ago the matches were cut to best of 11s and actually Initially, it worked okay as a format in terms of you had 32 players there, at least every match was on television, you could follow it. Now, it's just all just all seems to be crammed in. It's a real shame. It's a great event. The Barbican is a superb venue. York is a lovely city. It's still a very special tournament with some great memories that you've just sort of alluded to. But I don't think it's as special as it once was, you know. Um, even the semi-finals now are best of 11. You know, this is the UK Championship. So for that reason, unfortunately, it's gone down my list, even though I still love the event and certainly have some great memories of, of watching it and, and indeed attending it. Yeah, and I think over time, it may well drop down that list because those memories of it being best of 17s and, as you say, the best of 31 final back in the day will become more and more distant. And you'd love to see it being revived. I mean, if you remember in those days, it was generally just 16 players in the televised stage. Even the very best players had to come through two matches mm. to get that far. But because you had the long matches, you tended to have the very best players in the later stages. You look at the semi-final, quarter-final lineup for the UK any year, and with a few exceptions, it's generally all big names. And it was like a mini world championship almost because it was the only other tournament really at that time, apart from those few years when we had the world match play where you had a long-distance tournament other than the World Championship. You were well into the season, and it was a little bit of a taster, really. It was generally late November, early December, and it was sort of putting it in your head, OK, this, this is just a little bit of a foretaste of what's coming up at Sheffield in a few months' time. So just for me, I put it at, at, at number two. Uh, well, here's the thing. You see, I think the Masters has gone the other way. I think the Masters has become more prestigious. 
going back, you know, 30 years, it didn't feel to me anyway, and this is a personal list, any more special than the Grand Prix, the Mercantile, these tournaments. But it's become, I think, a better event in recent years. I think it went downhill when it went to Wembley Arena. It, the venue was too big. It was a bit soulless. But it's been definitely rejuvenated at Alexandra Palace. And it also helps that the ranking system has changed. So now the top 16 really are the top 16. Every match does feel like a final. Um, they, they, you know, they pack the place out. Obviously, they brought in the new um, hospitality this year, although we'll see what happens in January, whether that can come back. But it feels special. If they make they make a real effort now. Again, I think I mentioned it on a previous podcast. Donna Beresford is the event manager for the BBC tournaments for World Snooker Tour. She does a fantastic job. She was in charge of all the bio bubble and all that stuff, and she uh, runs the Masters in terms of an event. And she's done a great job at actually raising the stature. It was already a very important tournament. Don't get me wrong, but I think now it really does feel like it is the second biggest tournament on the circuit. Yeah, and I would completely agree with that. I think if you were doing it and what if we were ranking these tournaments in terms of where they stand now, I think everyone would agree with that. I don't think you'd find anyone really. Well, I suppose maybe people in China you know, might regard their tournament, the China Open, that you have placed very high as the second biggest. But just, as I say, taking it over the whole history, and we have great memories of the UK over the years, it was much, much bigger than the Masters back in the day. And, mm. You know, it just... The Masters didn't really stand out in the way it does now. So that's why I've gone for that. But, you know, it's, it's a well, very comfortable. Well, interestingly, one person who still thinks that, that the UK second is Jimmy White. Now, of course, Jimmy goes back goes back 40 years. So maybe, again, I mean, he's won both tournaments, but maybe he is sort of thinking about the sort of traditional view um, of how he felt as he was coming through as a player when the UK definitely was second. Look, I'm not running it down. It's not me that's run it down, actually. It's been downgraded by, by you know, the organisers. The UK Championship doesn't feel as big, and actually, we'll move on to number one in a moment, but I was at the Championship League in the summer, and myself and Phil were chatting with three players who have been around a while, you know, all quite senior players, and we were talking about this very subject, and they all said they don't regard the UK now as, you know, one of the big tournaments. They all want to win it. Of course they do. But it doesn't. Feel, they said it doesn't feel the same as it once did. So that's coming from players. Anyway, so number one, <laughs> uh, what could it? What, what could it be? What could it be? Well, obviously it's the World Championship, um, and it's almost like we don't need to say anything really. I think everyone listening to this, they're snooker fans. They know why the World Championship is the best tournament. It's because it's the best tournament. Yeah, and again, you know, we always compare it to other sports. Uh, you look at golf. Uh, there's there's no definitive. You know, best tournament out of the four majors in golf. You get some people like me would say the Open, other people say the Masters. A dwindling number of people would say the US Open, and only a career contrarian would say the PGA was the biggest. <laughs> Same with tennis. I mean, even though I think probably you'd get the majority of people still saying Wimbledon is the biggest, but there's not that much in it really, and I don't think players draw much of a distinction between the four Grand Slams and tennis, especially. No, also, if you're French, you want to win the French yeah, Open, don't you? Yeah, yeah, so... and especially in the modern age because. You know, people who are interested in tennis might not remember up until about the mid 80s. A lot of the top players didn't even travel to it. But that's you know long since changed now. So there's not much to choose between them. The only other sport, comparable <clears throat> sort of individual sport you can really compare to is darts, where, again, the World Championship is very much the standout event. And look, we don't need to say much about why it is. I think anyone who watched the World Championship a few weeks ago will uh, will, t will tell you why it was. And I, I just always have that nagging fear now watching the World Championship that it may not be that long before someone comes along and tries to change it. And if you were designing it from scratch now, you wouldn't design it remotely like what it is. You wouldn't have these long matches. You wouldn't have a 32-player tournament mm. going on on two tables 
over it's effectively two and a half weeks, you wouldn't even have it at the Crucible. You'd probably have it in some much bigger venue. And just there's so much change going on in sport and the media and everything else nowadays. I do have that fear that somebody is going to come along and say, right, let's slash these distances. Let's make it a different event. And if you do that, it isn't the world championship anymore. Well, let's hope they don't. I mean, ironically, we've spoken about Barry Hearn being the great innovator, which he is, but actually he's also, when it comes to the Crucible, a traditionalist. I mean, he once, he actually said, I don't want to go down in history as the man who took the World Championship from the Crucible. And I think if it stays there and it's still a 17-day event, then there's absolutely no reason to change it. I don't think he would. I'm not saying no one else would. I mean, there may be pressure from other people, but I don't think he would. Yeah, and one of the reasons it works, though, like you say, it's not a, definitely not a format you'll come up with now. But one of the reasons it works is because it's the only tournament on the circuit that has that format. If we had lots of events with, with, with the same length of matches, it wouldn't feel as special. It's And you see it with players. You see it with, like, Jamie Clark played in it, obviously, this year, Kurt Mafflin. They've never played best of 25s before as professionals. Completely new experience to get used to. Um, and you can see it in the way the matches go. You know, you can see players having to cope with being in a certain position overnight. The fact that matches can last three days. You never see that in any other tournament. And I'm with you. Long may it continue. Um, a lot of people, there was about a, a, a craze about 10 years ago. People were almost trying to talk World Snook into moving the championship to China so they could then complain about it. So yes. I, wouldn't get, I wouldn't get too carried away with it changing. I think it will stay, if the BBC continue to cover it and want to show it for 17 days and, the, and it's still at the Crucible, I can't see why it wouldn't continue in the same fashion. I'm with you, though. If they ever did cut it, it's not the same. It's just not the same and it's not, not, not as worthwhile either. Yeah, and also the, the one thing as well I think has is, is been part of it, um, and we're so used to it now, we don't really even reflect on it, the fact that it's the climax of the season, it's the last event of the season. I mean, again, you look at other sports, you know, the Open, Wimbledon, whatever, you're back to playing regular events the following week. The World Championship, it is the end of it. You've come through this long winter of all these tournaments, but there's always a sense, as big as they are, that it is all building up to that big finish. It's a bit like the football season finishes with someone winning the league and then you have the FA Cup final and the Champions League final and all the rest of it. And again, it's what leaves the memory lingering of the season. You look at Judd Trump, he had a brilliant season. Yes, he mm. went out relatively early actually in the World Championship, but he still had a fantastic season. But there have been many times over the years when a player hasn't had a great season, won the World Championship and been happier than anyone. Think of, say, Steve Davis in 85, 86, who had won several tournaments. He's had a very good season actually. He'd won the UK, he'd won the Grand Prix, he'd won the British Open. But still, Joe Johnson was probably much happier with his season at the end of it because he was the one who had the big finish standing there in that moment on the Monday night, as it usually was. I know it was a Sunday this year with those lights that I don't think have changed at all in the 40 years. Mm -hmm. shining down, still the same trophy. It still feels like that same moment. It's one of the very, very few things in the game that hasn't changed at all uh, well, throughout well, its history. Exactly. It's, it's the only thing that can bring you effectively snooker immortality now. Uh, yeah. even, even making a maximum doesn't do that now because they're so common. Winning the World Championship, I mean, I know Joe really well. I've been out for dinner with Joe and people still of a certain age will come over to him and they will, they always say the same thing and they always say, you won the World Championship beating Steve Davis. That's what they remember. He beat the best player in the game in the final. It, 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 it is, and it changes whole careers for good and bad. You know, if you've won it, if you haven't won it, the way it's gone for you. So yeah, I think I'm sure everyone listening will agree with our choice. I just want to, before we wrap up, just mention a couple of events that, that were on the shortlist. I already mentioned the Tour Championship. Um, again, these are personal choices. I always loved, and you were there as well, going to Malta 
we got treated we got treated so well those events were so laid back i mean obviously on the table it's still a competitive event but what a, what a great place to go to just the pace of life there is terrific you know and no rushing around and people barging out each other out the way it's all very refined and enjoyable and let's be honest the food was incredible as well um championship league was high on my list as well i mean that that is that is the great survivor as well so many people over the years including in the game have said we don't need this tournament what's it doing on the calendar but actually the fact that matchroom kept it going and importantly kept the relationship going with those bookmakers and, the, and their websites has now allowed them to uh to you know it boosts the tournament they had it in the summer it's now becoming a ranking event that's because they kept it going all these years and it's always been a good tournament to us um did you have any other events that sort of came close not really, no. I mean, look, there are plenty of other great tournaments, but I think we've we've mentioned pretty much everything there. You talked about the catering in Malta. I remember uh, Phil coming back from it one year and saying, <laughs> I, I, I indulged so much, I almost thought I was going to have to pay excess baggage on myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let us know, obviously, let us know um, if, you, what, you, if you've got any other tournaments you feel should be in the top 10. They're all personal lists. I'd be surprised if anyone didn't have the World Championship as number one. You can email us, Podcast at mail.com that's snoogasin podcast at mail.com all being well we will return next week we'll have hopefully dave tyndall's uh, result of his tournament uh well hopefully we'll be back unless of course i get the tap on the shoulder uh that ray stubbs mentioned but uh, if, we, if that doesn't happen we'll see you next week sports social podcast network it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.